Welcome to another session of Global Supply Chain Week. We're looking at the where we're looking at the state of the supply chains and trade coming out of the pandemic. I'm Eric Coolish, Air Cargo and Supply Chain Editor at Freightways. I'm joined today by Walter Kempsey's managing partner at the Kempsey's Group. A, he's a renowned trade economist who spends a lot of time on freight transportation and infrastructure. Walter, welcome to the Freightways virtual chat. Thank you. Good to be here. So there's uh, so much going on in the the news and in the global economy. Let's dive right into it. Um, I wanted to to get a sense of you know how you think of how the economy is progressing heading into 2023. It's been kind of a very uncertain year, very uh, choppy. You know, different uh, types of uh, signals of slow growth or positivity with uh, the job market, but. Um, you know, so give us a sense of how you think that's impacting freight costs. And, and, and at the same time, you know, a lot of the forecasts are, you know, based on lessons learned from the pandemic. So do you think, you know, shippers, freight companies and governments have, have taken any lessons from the pandemic, um, you know, analyze the data properly uh, and are making better decisions now? Yeah. So uh, let me, to, to answer that, let me do a little looking back and then we'll look forward. But, uh, but looking back, um, you know, historically, we don't have a lot of data on this, but basically global pandemics kind of burn out within a couple of years. And so back in the second quarter of 2020, uh, there was massive panic, uh, you know, uh, and, and a massive overreaction. The, the basic premise was that we would never go to stores again. We would never travel again. We would never gather in groups again which was really bizarre to me because if you look back to say the you know the Spanish flu 1918 to 1920 it took 2 years for the virus to mutate into something that didn't kill its host because if a virus doesn't mutate into something that doesn't kill its host the virus will die out that's just math it's not uh, it's you know not theory or anything it's just it's that's how life propagates so um, we've had a whole bunch of near misses, but uh, you know, this time the uh, the viruses that threatened the pandemic came out of China rather than Hong Kong, and uh, China made a horrible policy error by lying through its teeth about what was happening, and then trying to hide it as if that would make the problem go away. So that childish reaction to the pandemic was um, a real surprise to me, but um, the. I'll talk about some other surprises, but once this got in place and uh, we were told we'd have a vaccine by the by early 2021, which we did, um, we started to see consumers, you know, shift from this everything from home behavior because they were forced to, not because they wanted to. And that was a very important interpretation to make because people did not want to stay home day and night. They you know, there's even demand to go to the office, maybe not, you know, all five days a week. But a lot of our previous patterns of behavior we were doing because we liked what we did. How did the government and maybe other and companies misread that, um, you know, and and how they applied it to supply chains? Yeah, well, <clears throat> let's just start off with um, we first off, the everybody believed that was going to be the case. So all of these companies that benefited from people were doing more from home. Uh, they overinvested. 
Uh, and uh, basically, you know, we even had this spike in the share of retail sales for e-commerce. It was around 11%. It shot up to about 16%. And then a lot of the companies, uh, big e-commerce companies, forecast off the peak. You know, look, I've got a degree in forecasting. And uh, I can tell you one of the biggest mistakes you can make is forecast off of a, of a, uh, a historically, you know, uh, a historic new peak. Uh, you have to be very careful with that. And so uh, that misinterpretation resulted in way too much investment by tech companies, by uh, tra- home, you know, day trading companies, platforms, uh, you know, bicycles. So you make the list, right? So all the guys who, who won during the pandemic eventually would have to lose when we reverted back to our previous behavior. And the easiest way to have monitored that is you didn't need big data and all of that. All you needed was to go to the TSA website, you know, once a week, pull down the last seven days of how many people were processed at the airports and compare it to 2019, 2018. And uh, that told you a lot right then and there. Uh, As soon as the vaccines became available, December 2020, January 21, um, you saw all of a sudden, you know, vaccines were being given. Some people didn't want to take them, but it, that's fine. Uh, we started to see people traveling again. And the, the number of people traveling every day, just on average, because you have to collect your holidays and all that, but it was increasing on a pretty linear fashion. And so why you would still go out there and order tons of things for people to do from home when very clearly people wanted to get the hell away from home and go do anything else was surprising. So basically, the big companies were the ones who were able to go to the spot market when they wanted more stuff and pay $30,000 for a 40-foot container. Uh, But the smaller retailers, the mid-market size retailers, the really small retailers, uh, they didn't have that kind of a balance sheet. So uh, they're not the ones who over-ordered. And if you look at the time series for general merchandise companies, their inventory to sales ratio, uh, and you look at the retailers, which includes the big companies, but also scores of little ones, and the big companies are a minority. So the retailers' inventory to sales ratio is more a reflection of what's happening to the smaller companies. Both of them went from a dollar forty a month of sales of, of inventory to a dollar of, of sales per month. They dropped to a dollar twenty. The big guys did. The little smaller ones went to dollar ten. And then they worked very hard over the next year and a half to get back up. The larger companies overshot their inventory to sales ratio for them went to a dollar sixty, and the smaller ones uh, from went from a dollar twenty to a dollar thirty. But they are sorry from a dollar ten to a dollar thirty, but they're struggling to get back to a dollar forty. Uh, you know, China remained sh- shut during COVID in some insane bid to prevent COVID, you know, from spreading. Uh, which we know wasn't going to work in the first place. Uh, so we still haven't seen the smaller retailers rebuild their inventories to where it needs to be. But the larger ones are, are very stuffed. Their warehouses are stuffed. And what they're doing is uh, taking containers and just handing it to uh, to downstream discount retailers because it's just literally no room at the end for more stuff. So uh, it's not surprising then that we have... Uh, a declining volume of import con- uh, imported containers, and it's not surprising to see reports that um, the uh, retailers, especially the larger ones, are still canceling purchase orders from Asia. 
But do you think there's a, you know, with the recessions mild, as some are thinking, um, and, you know. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Before we go there, can I just want to add something. So that's what I was saying in, in late 2021. Um, in March of 2022, the big retailers had to admit they had too much inventory, and they started cutting their purchase orders. There is a seven-month lag between the time when purchase orders start being cut, the volumes drop. Because that's how long it takes for you to, when you place an order, to get that container to show up at the at the port. And so seven months later, we expected a transportation recession. And it started pretty much right on time in October. And for the last three months of the year, we've seen a decline in port container volumes. So that's the transportation recession. So what, there were two things that were surprising to me in this. The first was that the Federal Reserve, for some unimaginable reason, thinks that the inflation is the result of something they can uh, on, on the demand side, and, and it isn't. Um, so it was surprising to me that the Fed thought that if they raise interest rates, uh, they will cure the inflation problem. It's not true. The inflation problem was a supply-side problem. We had truck driver rates going through the roof. Those peaked last summer. We had wages, wage growth rates peaking last year in, uh, in, in March at 5.6%, and then it started to drop each month. Uh, energy prices shot through the roof uh, because of the, uh, the Ukraine-Russia war. Uh, ag prices went through the roof, partly because of horrible weather. All the rivers were way down across the Northern Hemisphere, Asia, North America, Europe. And, uh, and then, you know, and finally, uh, you know, when you, when you look at these cost components, it's pretty obvious why we had, you know, companies had to raise prices to consumers. They, it was either that or, or, or start losing profits. Well, Walter, wasn't it, Walter, wasn't it both ways? I mean, obviously there was the huge supply component to the increased costs, but the consumers had a lot of extra money from the, the COVID relief bills, from uh, the Trump administration, uh, you know, tax cuts and, and other savings. So, I mean, there was a, a demand or a, consumer, you know, a monetary portion of that uh, inflation too, wasn't there? Well, to a small extent, yes. I mean, yes, you did get money from the federal government. You got the Federal Reserve was very liberal with its policies. But basically, all that happened is consumers had shifted from spending 70% of their money on services and 30% on goods to 67% on services and 33% on goods. And consumer spending is 70% of the economy. So these small shifts are, are a lot of, are trillions of dollars of GDP. So, um, but they shifted. So they just weren't going out. They were just staying home. They were buying things to do from home. They weren't out, you know, out and about and eating at restaurants, staying at hotels, et cetera. So, you know, it was more of a pivot of consumer spending that, that we saw. Um, that's what created the congestion at the ports, at the railroads, at, you know, the, at the warehouses. But uh, but most of the causes of the inflation came from the supply side. The inflation didn't really pick up until very late in, in 2021. Um, so we had gone through a good year or more of this massive shift in consumer spending, and you didn't see the inflation. And, uh, you know, another example of the distortion that the Fed's not catching on to is last month we had a huge jump in employment. And inflation dropped. The inflation rate, I think the PCE dropped from over 6% to 4% or in that range. Uh, the, the, the CPI did the same thing. Uh, 
that's what you focus on. There are the, the, the relationships between the macroeconomic variables have been distorted since we shut down the economy. And they're still kind of going back to some kind of stable relationship. But basically, inflation went down, employment jumped a lot, and everybody and the Fed thinks they're going to have to raise interest rates again to uh, reduce inflation. Why? Inflation's already dropping. The congestion that we had at the ports, that's gone away. But by raising interest rates, you're not going to stop the Russian-Ukrainian war, which resulted in higher wheat prices because Russia blockaded Ukraine. By raising interest rates, you're not going to lower energy prices. Uh, you're not going to encourage investment in energy infrastructure. I mean, that is happening because of the demand from, from Europe. But uh, by raising interest rates, you're not solving that problem. Uh, we had problems with the weather last year. We didn't grow enough food as much as we normally do. Raising interest rates isn't going to fix the climate. I don't know what these people are thinking. Plus, the Federal Reserve doesn't seem to understand that the Census Bureau's forecast for the working age population call for an average increase of 300,000 workers uh, over the next 10 years uh, added to the labor force. That's, that's nothing. You know, we, last month, 500,000 people employed. Last year, on average, 250,000. So as, as far as I can tell, we had a big supply problem that's being resolved. And uh, as we resolve the supply problem, the, uh, uh, the inflation pressures will go away. And the Fed has made a number of mistakes in the past, like in the 70s. They were, you know, pumping money yeah, to the economy. Let's not go that far back. <laughs> no, no, but it's important to look at it in that context. In the 70s, we didn't have oil. There was the Arab oil embargo. Yeah. And uh, the Fed's response to that was to print a lot of money. You know, let's stimulate demand and we will avoid a recession. Yeah, well, you created a lot of inflation because the problem was oil. By, by printing money and lowering interest rates, you're not going to produce more oil. And, and that's the, the Fed historically has not understood that sometimes the data you're looking at are, are supply driven and not demand driven. And this goes for economists in general. You know, I, I would. You know. What about the labor situation? You refer, you reference that. You know, as you said, uh, hiring is still strong, but you know, so many jobs at either ports or airports or and retail uh, companies can't aren't being filled, and so you know that adds uh, extra costs and inefficiencies. How long is it going to take till you know people kind of get back in the job sector fully um, after the pandemic? Right. Okay. So let's start off with the premise that we don't really have a lot of uh, a lot of workers out there. We're we're very very short workers. Unemployment rate is at a sixty year low, three point four percent. We need five percent if you really want some stability, but three point four is going to choke our growth. So what's happened is when the pandemic started, we fired all these people from services, laid them off. Even though a lot of companies were paid to by the government not to lay people off, they did it anyways. And I'll come back to that in a second. So all those laid off workers, fortunately, could get jobs in warehouses and distribution centers and other things to support the physical goods supply chain. And now they overhired them. And you, we've seen some of the bigger retailers out there laying off staff, et cetera, mostly white collar, but, but nonetheless. And we've got the service sector struggling to hire enough people so we can get back to flying the same number of airplanes, running the same number of trucks and trains, uh, sorry, not trucks, trains. Uh, that we did before. Uh, right now, we're not back to pre-pandemic uh, numbers of people flying, but mostly because we can't staff the airlines in the airports yet fully to be able to get back to those numbers. So 
the, I told you there were two surprises to me. One of them was the Federal Reserve's you know, policies. The second thing that surprised me is the large number of bad decisions that were made, uh, starting with interpreting 2020 as a permanent shift in human behavior, and then extended to overhiring, to buying too much real estate. Um, so the mistakes that I think the Fed is making are, are being, have been extended by a lot of corporate leaders. So, um, so, so there's been a lot of misinterpretation about what's been going on. We could add a third, a third surprise, and that was China. You know, the China, China's COVID policy was uh, bizarre to me. So let, that's good. Let's, so that is another potential mistake. The, the Chinese kind of miscalculated or, you know, took a different approach than the rest of the world. But now they've totally shifted. They've, they're, they're trying to dig out of that and open up quickly. And now they're having a lot of COVID uh, um, outbreaks there. So going forward, how do you see that impacting supply chains? Will the, will the factories and the exports get up to speed uh, relatively quickly or will these COVID, um, you know, outbreaks in China keep holding things back. That one's a little hard to interpret <clears throat> because, um, you know, we figured that once you open, you know, you let every, you know, alley, alley, everybody out, right? Um, it, the problem is, is as soon as everybody was let loose, uh, the virus spread rapidly across the country, as was to be expected. And it's made staffing factories, et cetera, just as difficult as it was in 2020. Um, you know, unfortunately, China didn't have the good judgment to go and buy the vaccines that work from foreign manufacturers. Uh, China tried to go it on its own, and it doesn't, it's not developed enough to be able to do that. Uh, you know, the correct action would have been to simply buy a billion or, or, or two billion Moderna or Pfizer vaccines and inoculate everybody and minimize the impact. So we're going to have, you know, we started last part of last year, once the, the COVID you know, restrictions were lifted, we'll probably see until this coming summer, uh, a lot of problems with the supply chain coming out of China. Uh, I think we're going to have wave after wave of people getting sick and factories not being able to fully staff. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, there may be a lot of hesitation also to return to factories. You know, some folks may go back to the rural provinces and stay there rather than remain in the more urban areas and, and run the risk of catching COVID. So, uh, so unless, unless China does the right thing and starts buying vaccines that works for their population. <clears throat> so, but the problem is, is that I think there, the, the acceleration of shifting from sourcing from China uh, could also stymie some of that growth. Um, companies that I know and I talk with and that I work with, uh, they are uh, rapidly uh, trying to uh, relocate uh, their their supply chains. So, um, and then between that and the Uyghur and uh, Uyghur forced labor, you know, uh, uh, enforcements that are going on. I think to date we're probably close to a trillion dollars or something like that of goods being impacted. I forgot what the number. A billion dollars. I beg your pardon. Uh, a billion dollars worth of electronics and other related goods, um, you know, being seized. Uh, under the Uyghur, you know, accusations, that's another problem for for imports from China. Yeah, so definitely the uh, the China trade uh, situation will be uh, uh, something to watch and um, an ongoing, you know, up and down, um, you know, journey there 
with the slowdowns potentially in lots of areas. So, well, listen, Walter, that's about all the time we have. Uh, we have to leave it there. I want to thank you for being our guest today. All right. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Thanks, Eric.